Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. I'm feeling chilly because I'm recording I'm... live from a Norwegian mountaintop. Uh, I also, in, in a massive coincidence, I also have gone to a Norwegian <laughs> mountain, but I think a different Norwegian mountain than you've gone to. Actually, if I'm if I'm going to be really honest with everyone, I'm in an Icelandic glacier pretending to be a Norwegian mountain. Uh, so that's 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 fair enough. I I am budget considerations. You know, I'm I'm in Norway pretending that I'm on Hoth. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're finally we're, we're getting closer to the inevitable Star Wars episode today. We are no, we are oh, no, star- staring it. into a fire you, of the it. divine. You you've summoned it into the podcasting universal consciousness that eventually we'll do a star wars episode that's up there that's up there with the back to the future episode those are like the with the the signs of the final days of horror vanguard you will see a star wars episode and a back to the future episode um but in the meantime <laughs> before yeah but in the, but in the meantime we get to that talk about stuff. yeah let's let's <laughs> i you know what i actually think this is a, you brought up a really good point you know October was a pretty intense month. We put out some of our longest ever episodes. We were talking about some pretty dark, some pretty intense stuff. So I think we should just talk about something light, something easy, a, an easy, a mellow romantic comedy uh, set in beautiful Europe. Does that sound? Does that sound good? <laughs> I, one of my favorite locations is Europe. <laughs> Uh, yeah, let's let's go to let's go to London, England, as opposed to, <laughs> let's go to and let's just do something light, something easy, something all the family right. can enjoy, like dismembering Nazis. Let's let's talk about that. Ah, so chill, so chill. That is right. We are talking about um, we are talking about dead snow uh, and dead snow part two. Uh, red versus dead. You know what they say: better red than dead. <laughs> <laughs> um, now I realize it's, it's you know it's not a super mainstream film uh, or film duo, uh, and people the the taglines tell you a lot about these films. I feel, but I feel for people who might need a bit more information, a little bit more detail. Ash, would you mind just kind of fleshing things out for us? and explaining what Dead Snow is about. Uh, hang on, I just have to add a really quick note about Rockabilly in our, in our show doc. Okay, that's done. Oh, today will be fun, won't it? <clears throat> uh, gather round, gather round, listeners, gather round. The ice planet Hoth from Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back was filmed on a glacier just, just outside of Fins, Norway. On July 9th, 1940, just 39 years before Empire was filmed, Norway fell to the Nazis despite attempting a strategy of neutrality during World War II. 30 years after Empire was filmed, Dead Snow 2, Red vs. Dead, was filmed in Iceland and depicted the same Norwegian landscape as the original Dead Snow film. 
Likewise, the original Star Wars trilogy is by some measure a depiction of radical insurgents attempting to destroy, sabotage, and otherwise undermine a futuristic extension of the Nazis. Dead Snow 2 enters into this history with another fantasy depiction of an underdog group of heroes using all the tricks in the book to stop another Nazi rise to power. We continue to return to the ice. Our vision of the fantastic is bound to Hoth, to Norway, to the frozen battlefields of World War II, and the fight against Nazis and fascism more broadly. We return to this spot not because World War II has become a sedate sandbox for literary explorations, but because we still stand with our feet frozen in that historical moment. Literal Nazis still openly march, whether in Germany, England, or the United States. Like the zombies of Dead Snow, the Nazis were not defeated, merely temporarily subdued and rebranded. Our media turns this familiar worry stone over in our hands. We ask, what if the Nazis came back today? What would I do? Because perhaps in the corner of our popular consciousness, we know they never really left. Much like Dead Snow, this is dire and grim. Much like Star Wars, we stand in the position of the underdog. Both like Dead Snow and Star Wars, the fight against fascism continues and can be won by good people working together. There is hope in struggle, a movement that thaws the frozen ice. From Hoth to Norway, our fantasies stir a vision of a world free of the horrors of fascism. Warm up with us as we discuss Dead Snow and Dead Snow 2, Red versus Dead. Yes, 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 indeed, we are talking about uh, everybody's favorite topic, I think, Nazi zombies. Um, and to do that, to do that, I think we have to begin, as we always do, by falling through the frozen ice and landing in the long abandoned cave of the formalism zone. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. So, so, so whatever happened to Nazi exploitation movies? I, I mean, they never went away, did they? I, I mean, like, Inglorious Bastards, Dead Snow. I, I think the Nazi exploitation genre, like, lost a lot of popularity, sure, but it's still it's still kicking around. How how would you explain Nazi exploitation? You know, there are, like, so many... I When I think of Nazi exploitation, the best thing I think I would suggest someone to look at is um, during the original um, run of the uh, Grindhouse double feature um, with Planet Terror and Death Proof, there were uh, fake trailers for like other Grindhouse-style movies. And the one done by Rob Zombie was Werewolf Women of the SS. And that is kind of like the picture of what I think. That that like two-minute fake movie trailer is what I think of when I think of Nazi exploitation. This this often like hyper libidinal engagement with the, I think, extremely complicated and dark and and terrible political legacy that is fascism from World War Two to today. What what about you? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think. I just called Rob Zombie's Werewolf Women of the SS a complicated political engagement. Well, it necessarily <laughs> like the whole form of Nazi exploitation is necessarily quite complicated because naturally uh, it's invested in this kind of like the the seismic event of the twentieth century, but is also invested in a kind of libidinal cultural economy of erotics. Right, a lot of the mm. Nazi exploitations were uh, like softcore movies as well. 
Yep. Uh, yep. Because, because Deleuze and Guattari were right that there is really only one economy, that, uh, that, that <laughs> fascism's political economy is directly linked to the kind of erotic thrill of its... Uh, uh, of its design and aesthetics, right? That those two things are intensely politically linked, as Walter Benjamin pointed out. So it's not a surprise that Nazi exploitation and porno generally sort of found their way together in some some complex and often problematic ways. Naturally, and I think I mean a key part of Nazi exploitation is always almost always horror. Right. There are some action Nazi exploitation movies, but like horror is a powerful and strong element that runs through this. And I think partly because you're, you're absolutely right, like there's also something deeply libidinal about horror that, that ties it in with all of this. But then I think a lot of this art is an attempt at exploring and negotiating the mo- one of the most devastating events in human history, one of the most terrifying cultural inventions we've created as a species species. You know, like that, that's something that we're not going to be done grappling with for quite a very long time. And this is all part of, I think, the, the, the I guess, cultural mess of moving through something that terrible and, and kind of, I guess, historically potent. And uh, it's not a surprise that horror is very good at this because horror is the ultimate form that lends itself to hybridity. Right, horror horror can adapt and be kind of grafted onto anything else. Um, so you have this. This is this kind of fits into. Um, well, this is a splatter movie, right? This is splatter Nazi exploitation. Oh, oh, I totally agree. It, yeah. it made me. It made me think of uh, Mike Rignetta's excellent video essay when stuff gets on the camera. Uh, I don't. I don't know if you've seen that, which is all about this exploration of kind of tactility of what happens when we. When 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 stuff is either flying on or is added to the camera lens, what does that mean in the viewing experience? But also, this is not just the Spider movie. This is also, uh, well, it's a kind of, it's a very, it's a deeply moving romantic comedy. I think. I mean, I, I so we're talking about both Dead Snow movies together as as, as essentially one viewing experience, and we'll get to why that is in a bit. Um, but I think when you look at the the kind of character evolution of uh, Martin and his uh, girlfriend Hannah, I, I think it does become like an interesting rom com in a way that that like uh, so it, and Hannah dies in the first movie um, and is and is not zombified, she's just regular dead, and. By the time we reach the end of the second movie, Martin has a a zombie Nazi commander's arm sewn onto his body uh, to replace his missing arm, and which gives him the power to zombify people, right, to return them. And he brings Hannah back from the dead, and they like have have sex, you know, just straight out of a like necrophiliac movie. It's it's very and- Bruce LaBruce. It's very Bruce LaBruce. It's very auto or up with dead people. <laughs> And I think it's I think it's also like there's something really interesting about that too because like what 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 does it mean to lose something to the tide of fascism and what does it mean to attempt to have it again? And I think I think the key thing about that interpreting this in the kind of cultural framework of the rom com is that Martin Martin isn't simply beholden to some some event from his life in the past, some person, some important thing that he can never return to. 
by by the time we reach the end of the second movie, Martin is now also a zombie, right? He, or at least part zombie. You know, he's he's been permanently scarred and brought into this other world, right? It's not so much he's forcing himself back into the past as as much as it is he's kind of raising this kind of like necro history of the future. And of course, th- framing this uh I okay, I I, I know I <laughs> I know, I know your allergies are going going crazy today, but I, I, ju- I, ju- I just think you're dangerously close to sounding like Slavo Zizek. <laughs> oh, it's uh, it comes for us all in time now, doesn't it? Uh, but <laughs> well, something to point out about the romantic comedy angle is that it makes personal the political stakes of the film's se- of the yes. second film, right? Like g- generally. Generally, it it would be okay for us to go. Well, I, I, here's a here's a theory. The closest analogy to this film is the the Wolfenstein games. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, uh, that's that's the closest closest analog I think that we can get. Where it's where it is not only not only necessary but also funny and morally justifiable to you know drown Nazis in their own piss. it's poetic really it's quite poetic but like the game with uh bj blaskowitz and like this that struggle is then personalized through an individualized kind of romantic attachment so you can't have anti-fascism as some great political principle or ideology because in the contemporary moment those political ideologies don't necessarily hold true anymore and certainly the most virulently anti-fascist political ideology uh, which is which is in the second part of this film, in various problematic ways, it is not commonly accepted. So you have to kind of like focalize it through human sociality, right? Which is why it's necessary that this have a romantic comedy aspect to it. Calling Erna. Reply, please. Did I lose you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We just we just broke up again. What did I miss? Um, nothing super important just going on a on a, on a tear um, <laughs> but this is you know i almost like it sometimes when our call disconnects because then when i listen back and edit the episode i'm just like oh god damn it that was such a good point this is a very kind of trope heavy film right it's very it's very deliberately self-aware um and it's almost it's it gets very self-referential and kind of metatextual what do you think about that aspect of it on a formal level? Um, I, I think it becomes kind of like oddly important to the political reading of this film. Y- you know, like I, I think. Tell me more. We, we were <laughs> well. Well, so so I think like to, to tether it to the rom com angle for for a second, and then to move into this, like, um. Like the the purpose of anti-fascism isn't solely the defeat of fascism, right? The the ending of fascism as a political project. It's it's also part of like a larger thing. It's part of a larger cultural body, right? It's kind of like this. It's like a it's like I'm taking kind of like a Deleuzian approach to anti-fascism as a historical thing, but it's like anti-fascism is part of the necessary workings of the liberation of the working class. Right, like the goal isn't simply the end of fascism. The goal is to bring about a better world. Yeah, it has a it has a negative and positive project. Yes, yes. 
and not negative or positive in a moralistic sense here. No, in a, no, in but in a in ways, a yeah. in a philosophical sense, in a yes, philosophical absolutely. sense, absolutely. So it, it is about the the negation of actually existing fascism and the elimination of its conditions, and also in the positive sense, the construction of a political or social project that means that fascism is literally unthinkable. Yes, I completely agree. Um, and I think in terms of the excess of this film, it could kind of its self-referential nature and, and how over the top of the violence and the comedy and the horror all are, I think serves an important much again, like much like Wolfenstein. Um, it's got this very important purpose, which is to not make the Nazis a serious thing, because I think we, we straddle this complicated position where fascism is both incredibly serious as a threat. But as as a cogent worldview, as a body of politics, as something we need to consider, or de, de, air quotes, massive, fucking the largest possible quotes you debate with, like it is, it is a completely unserious way of engaging with the world. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the thing. Fascism wants to project a kind of glamour, right? Fascism wants yeah. to, wants itself to, and if you take it seriously on the aesthetic level, you are in a sense seeding important ground like the the end of the second film yeah. puts it puts it perfectly fascists are fucking losers <laughs> right? yeah like, absolutely and th- this movie i think even on a design level does that really well right because it, it would be really tempting to make the nazi zombies look incredibly cool you know like like that, that and this is often uh, one of the m- kind of many noticeable faults of nazi exploitation is that they it either accidentally or purposefully makes nazis look cool aesthetically right or cool in terms of their actions or there's something appealing about them right but this movie like uh, a little bit you know like a little bit it certainly doesn't make them as farcical as they could be and and, and not to moralize or judge the film here but like one one thing that i really enjoy is that like our uh our nazi I'm not, i was about to say our nazi leader but i don't think that's the way i'm going to say that <laughs> Heads uh, but, but there's um Standarten für Herzog is is the leader of the Nazi zombies, right? And when you look at his uniform, it's all fucked up, right? All all of his all of his little like his Totenkopf pin is crooked and falling off. All of his insignia is tarnished and bent, and like not in a way that that like when we get when we get to the Soviet zombies, they kind of have this aesthetic to them. You know, like they're they're very like they're they're all like lumberjacks, right? They they have this very like bear look to them that there's a certain kind of libidinal like temptation that they're given that that the nazi soldiers here don't quite get you know and like they're they're, they're all kind of like shriveled and desiccated and and dull in terms of their color palette and like you know they they only spring into this vibrancy when they're blown up and they're 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 like you know robitus and blood goes flying everywhere <laughs> or or when they have their intestines torn out Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I agree with you actually, and the film film kind of certainly does hit all of the all of the tropes, even in a kind of self referential way. But there are a couple of things which uh, I don't know will probably make people roll their eyes. Um, the kind of most egregious one is the uh, killing killing our gays again, killing the gays. Yeah. Uh, Glenn, uh, who is actually a really fun character, uh just right before he's about to come out heavily queer coded throughout the film uh is just murdered by a nazi and uh, you you kind of go 
oh, did we have to do this one? Did we? You know, I know you want to include all of the tropes we've had. You know, sex uh, leading to immediate death for women, that kind of thing. But did we really have to include the trope of killing off the gay people as well? Yeah, and I tried. I tried to like conjure up some kind of reading against the text for that one. You you know, because like we know he's gay, right? Because he misspeaks and talks about this man that he's in love with, but then quickly because he's still somewhat closeted, switches it up to to a she, right, to save face. Um, and then like you know, is is his final statement going to be coming out? Was it you know like because the fact that it's cut off could could be used to read an indictment of us the viewer as a participant in cinema you know like why have we allowed ourselves to become accustomed to to the killing our gays trope why is that the first place we naturally go but like yeah, there's just not enough in the rest of this movie to kind of sink into for that you know countertextual reading to really like yeah get and, the critical mass it needs to take off and it's a shame because it certainly does allow that kind of counterfactual reading to apply to other tropes right but not in this case, mm-hmm. which is which is a kind of limitation and a bit of a problem with the movie, in my opinion. Uh, one of the best things about this film, though, about the both of these films, or I, I'm going to refer to them as one film, as the, as the kind of de- yes. dead snow meta text, uh, is um, it, it's also really funny. Uh, and this fi- <laughs> this film this film proves that murdering children is extremely funny. <laughs> Uh, uh, I thought okay. about that a lot what's, too. With the uh, what's your the favorite start of Halloween ends? What's your favorite? <laughs> what's your favorite joke? What's your favorite kind of visual gag in this film? Um, I, I think a lot of them happen in the second movie. Yeah. The first movie I think is really fun, but a lot of the visual gags kind of they don't work as well for me. But the second one I think is when the movie really lets itself go. Oh, hundred percent. I love I love when the the little American tourist boy is 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 talking to martin our protagonist and he's like oh i know a zombie hunting squad and then like martin's zombie arm throws the boy out a window and then martin jumps out the window to try and give him cpr but accidentally tears his heart out in the process it's ridiculous um and then there, there's some like old norwegian man you know looking at like a like a lingerie ad in a newspaper or something and he's like oh honey like like oh I'm I'm in the mood for some head tonight and then like her her severed head is thrown it's at great. him by a zombie. Great, <laughs> it's a great and, bit. And when, like when uh when Martin in the final fight is like like strangles a bunch of Nazi zombies with their own intestines and then throws those intestines on a power line and electrocutes them. Uh, also is, great bit, amazing. <laughs> it's, it's just like it's so it's splatter right. It's so free and it's disgust that you kind of. The first movie is very disgusting, right? Like it wants it to, it, it's, it's very gross. The second movie kind of, it, it, it you know, it, it's, it's exploding with the ooze of jouissance, right? Like it's pushing us past that limited experience and you go from like that kind of guttural revulsion to like involuntary laughter. Uh, exactly. Uh, I think my, my favorite one in the second part is uh, the Nazis end up with a, with a tank <laughs> Uh, uh, and there's an amazing sequence where the tank rolls into this small town and everybody tries to run away. And there are two moments which genuinely made me laugh out loud, which is where someone is someone is pushing along somebody else in a wheelchair and just stops and leaves them. And it's, it's so cruel and so unnecessary. And the second one is two mothers with big old-fashioned prams trying to run away who are then blown up with a tank. Um, it's amazing. 
Although the first one does have an incredible bit of uh, comedy where Martin gets bitten. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. It chops chops off his own arm with a chainsaw, and then immediately gets bitten in the groin. <laughs> it's 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 not sophisticated. Co- it's not sophisticated comedy. I will admit, but if you watch it and don't laugh, you're a better person than I am. <laughs> <laughs> and I think a lot of this is like it's also got an important political like kind of level and reading to it, right? Because like necessarily, how does the project of fascism begin? You you go after queer people, right? You go after women. You go after the disabled, right? You go after the othered. You know, like that's that's how fascism builds power. Is it starts to to gnaw at those groups and then spreads from that. And who who are these Nazis going after first? It's all of these people. You yep. know, like like that is the natural flow of this. Absolutely, and the, the whole point of Splasser, the whole point of the gore, the whole point of the kind of the slime and the blood of it all is to turn this into like it, it's a cartoon, right? You you shouldn't yeah you should not take any of this seriously because that's again baked into the politics of the film, right? That you shouldn't take it seriously. Oh, yeah, yeah. And in, or at least it's affording us an opportunity to kind of like get out of our default ways of thinking about these issues and approach them from, you know, so this, is, this is like a classic thing of splatter, right? It's so grotesque. It's so over the top. It's it's a pry bar taking you out of the groove that you're stuck in. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a shock to the system. So... Would you like to talk about why we're choosing to read this as one metatextual body, one complete work, rather than as two films separately? Uh, because you kind of have to. You kind of have to. There's two reasons for this on a kind of formal level. Firstly, because we don't have the gap that was the the five years in between part one and part two arriving. Secondly, Within the text of the film, there is no gap. We don't jump forward five years. We start right at the end of the of you know the second part begins right at the end of the first part. They are they are narratively a coherent whole. Yes, absolutely. There, there is a there is a slightly more abstract philosophical reason that we can get into when we have finished with our formal zone. But <laughs> but what do you think? Have I kind of missed anything oh. here? No, no, I I completely agree, right? Like, and, and these movies are so well-connected and intertwined that you could cut them both together without really damaging the flow or either either text of the film. Maybe it would be a little long for, like, a splatter, Nazi exploitation horror comedy rom-com. But there, there's enough going in here to kind of sustain sustain that lengthy burn. Like, this makes a, a, an astoundingly good double feature in a oh, way yeah. that a lot yeah. of like horror, because a lot of horror movie sequels are a lot of like Halloween 2. A lot of those sequels are are kind of unofficial reboots. You know, like a lot of a lot of horror movies kind of have a, a somewhat definitive ending of our monster being like mulched or something. But, you know, there's another one coming, you know, like and then the next movie necessarily has to start with a little bit of a retcon. There's some disjointed things that don't fit. These two movies slot together perfectly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a continuation and intensification, right? It isn't it isn't a soft reboot, it isn't a retcon. We have talked to we've talked about the the practical effects, the 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 kind of splatter nature of the film. Was there was there anything yes. you want anything else you wanted to add? 
No, no. I just I love the effects in this. They're they're just they're, this is having fun with practical effects, right? You could tell that this movie was fun. You know, it, it might have been you know like I, I should really look more into like the, the shooting here because it seems like it also could be like Evil Dead, where it's fun but also like incredibly tormenting. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it seems like it's it seems like it's pretty fun. Uh, from what I can tell, a lot of the a lot of the actors were were you know if not big names in Norway, but like pretty well known. And this was a kind of like fun treat to to mess around for a little while. Uh, and I wanna I wanna bring everyone's attention back to the fact that Horror Vanguard is the forty first most popular film and television podcast in Northern Europe. So, uh, yeah, for the other 40 podcasts, we're coming for you. Yeah, we, I don't know what you are, but <laughs> we're, we're going to take your spot. Yeah, shout out to our Norwegian listener. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, listener. yeah, yeah, shout, shout out to the single person in northern Norway who, like, downloads all of our episodes on an SD card and has them shipped in or something. <laughs> um, and, but just to kind of wrap things up, I think uh, I should say RIP to Vega Hurla who plays yeah. plays Martin uh very sadly died in 2021 uh in his late 40s at the time um and had been uh, it wasn't it was never disclosed but had been ill for uh quite a few years um but uh what a cinematic legacy to leave um pu- punching Nazis so hard you tear out their hearts <laughs> like, <laughs> And I mean, hey, we're still we're still talking about it today. The film's still relevant, still hold up, still good. Sadly, it's still relevant. Um, should we wrap up our formalist zone uh, escapades and jump on to our sn- snowmobiles of discourse? <laughs> okay, so why don't let's let's kind of start with the with the big thing. Why are we? What is the kind of philosophical justification for treating this as one film? This, this I think, is, is, is the important thing. The end of the first film features... So, so the Nazis are back to reclaim their Nazi gold, uh, is, is kind of the plot of the first movie. Our protagonists accidentally stumble upon the Nazi gold, and they take pieces of it, which awaken the cursed horde of Nazi zombies. And the first movie ends with Martin uh, doing appeasement, uh, allowing yeah, the Nazis to metaphorically annex Poland. You know, yeah, like there you he, go. He Have it back. the Nazi gold. Yeah, because he thinks that will stop them, but it doesn't because uh, he accidentally he forgot he had a piece of it in his pocket and they they come for him. And it's 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 got this very complicated political pivot point that it rests on. Right. Because in on one hand, like that is a scathing indictment of the the liberal appeasement and kind of tolerance of fascism. And it's. It's also a remind. It's it's uh, horror is a diagnostic tool, something that we talk about a lot here. But it's also a reminder that horror is it's it's kind of you know it's telling us what's up. It's telling us what's wrong. It's like oh, what's wrong is that they tried to like reason and and make concessions with a fascist party. Yeah, and so I, as I I put it, like I I you could go full Theodore Adorno on the first part of the film because it's about these. <laughs> It's about these dehistoricized contemporary middle-class subjects who wander out into the frozen wasteland of modernity and find out that history in all of its blood and horror is literally the stuff that they stand on. And they're completely ignorant of it. They uh, they they grab the kind of stolen wealth of history, the, the gold that they find, uh, and then they try and appease history. They try and appease fascism 
by just handing it back. Um, like it's, it's, it's. It, if you want, if you if you read it just on those terms, the first film uh, not only kind of get, makes the Nazis less serious, it makes contemporary fascism easier to ignore. Oh, completely, completely. Uh, however, <laughs> however, <laughs> in like as a two-parter, this is about this is about uh, Martin becoming moving from being a medical student who's afraid of the sight of blood to being <laughs> to being a kind of like mecha anti-fascist who can punch Nazis to death, <laughs> like, which yes. I think I think is I'm going to be blunt. I think is a cool as hell political journey. <laughs> I, I love the evolution of his character because, like, he starts off as, like, a really insufferable loser, you know? Like, like he, it's very much the progression of Ashley Williams in Evil Dead. You know, he, he yes, starts yeah, off yeah. as this incredibly uninteresting, boring, uh, you know, kind of, like, D-tier boyfriend. And he starts to evolve over time as, as his own being is li- literally parts of him are replaced by the evil that he's fighting. Yeah. Absolutely. You, 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 fascism is something that makes its presence felt personally. Fascism changes your body, right? (laughs) Like, uh, it's a, as as a political metaphor, it's genuinely kind of flawless, I think. I, I agree. (laughs) Flawless 10, stuck the landing. Is is there going to be a a Dead Snow 3? Um, not that is currently in the works. Maybe, maybe, maybe someday. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, you know, depending, depending how this coming uh, economic downturn uh, uh, continues and evolves, perhaps uh, some studio, whoever's got the rights to this thing, will try and cash in for either the American Dead Snow remake, which is a Netflix, which that would be a Netflix miniseries, um, or Dead Snow three, which would 100% be a bunch of Stranger Things teens fighting evil soviet zombies yeah a hundred percent a hundred percent and they would they would fucking god they would film that in like bergen belsen or something they would do something so egregious fuck stranger things i'm still so mad about that but like this is why it's so good to to see it as a as a as a coherent whole both on the formal narrative level and on the kind of political or philosophical level it makes the it makes this film so much better um yeah and really, to be honest, this is what I think the film is about. It's about this question of what do we do with the fascism of with historical fascism? Yes, that is literally buried on the ground that we live in, right? That the ruin, like we are, we are so much, so much of Europe actually uh, still lives in the ruins yep. of 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 the fascism of the early twentieth century. It's like, so what do we do with that? What do we do with living in the in those ruins? Because you can't ignore it. You, uh, so you, it forces you into a confrontation with it. I, I, absolutely, like this is something I say all the time on the show. But like World, World War II ended in very few meaningful ways. You know, so, some of them incredibly meaningful and good and significant, like the Nazis being defeated. But in in other ways, a lot of the Nazis weren't defeated, and they got jobs in other governments. Shrug. You know, like a lot of the, the same power structures that are post war are still in place. You know, a lot of our crises are, are post world, still the echoes of post World War II struggles. Yeah. So you are one hundred percent correct about this. This is this is a global phenomenon. And it's like, 
so there is the there is the archetypal uh, horror movie character in the first part who turns up at the door of the cabin and basically uh just cusses them all out for being yep. for being <laughs> historically ignorant about the conditions of liberal modernity um I saw, I sort of, I've never associated myself more strongly with a character in a horror movie. <laughs> I know. I was, I was like, wow, I'm really, I'm really like, so I'm like, uh, you know, like on the cusp of turning 35, right? And like watching that, I, I was like, oh, wow. Like I'm starting to associate with the like, the grizzled old prospector who walks in on, on the, the horny camping college kids and is like, you know they call this blood demon peak because of the blood demons. Like, like I'm like, oh, I am okay. Yeah, okay. I see where this is going. Uh, I love, I, lo- I love him. I think he's great. I love the coffee, the his coffee snobbery, uh, his his classic Scandinavian hospitality. Um, <laughs> but like, he's the one who 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 basically calls them all out for their historical ignorance. That the kind of un thinking like use of the space for their own purposes despite the fact that this space only exists thanks to uh militant resistance but but there are dangers the danger of history is still present right oh oh absolutely right like like the 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 danger of like the, the ghosts of our past the ghosts of history like they they will make their presence known they will have their vengeance, you know, if, if we don't exercise them, you know, perhaps not in, in so, so violent and crass a way as, as exorcism as a word might evoke, if we don't commune with them, if we don't have this seance, right? It's the, uh, read, read, um, I suggest to our listeners again, read, uh, the Matt Calhoun's intro, intro to, uh, the reissue of Ghosts of My Life. It's fantastic. Um, yeah, the pa- the past is never dead, right? The past is never dead. It's not even past yet, right? It was we absolutely. It's, it's still there, and uh, those Nazis that you thought were back, turns out they can make new Nazis. We should I think, we I think should talk movie... about this. We should talk about this. Actually, yes. we should talk about the how, how you make new Nazis in the Dead Snow cinematic world. Because I, I think the Dead Snow c- c- cinematic universe. <laughs> It should be when the Avengers show up. No, um, what, what I think is really interesting is is how this movie depicts Nazis making new Nazis, right? Because there are two ways that these Nazis that, that uh, uh, Herzog replenishes the ranks of his Nazi army. Um, he either finds people, and then he he does immense violence to them, and then converts them into Nazis. Right. And we kind of learned that a lot of these people that he's turning are like, like he turns, he turns like a priest in, in, into a Nazi zombie priest. And there's a lot of like, like what, what did, what did the Catholic church do during world war two? Mm-hmm. Shrug, <laughs> you know, like, like there, there's a lot of potent political commentary in there, but as, a, and, and like that is really good too. Like Nazis create Nazis through the use of violence. And then his other method is, is to, to literally reach back into the past you know, like that, that, that kind of like, this is what they took from you. And it's like, like a, a picture of two amorphous children playing a Super Nintendo with like $7,000 of 90s pop ephemera plastered around them like a cocoon. Yep. And like they can't, they, they can't generate new is kind of the thing I find to be interesting. They can only mulch and repurpose what's around them. 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, and and this this kind of speaks to several things, right? The the kind of failures of denazification after the war. Oh, absolutely. Um, right, the fact that those who were active members of the of the Nazi Party often found themselves in senior positions both within and without Germany. Um, something that it made me think about is. This is set in northern Norway as well. So as you pointed out in the pricey, Norway was uh, occupied. Um, it was occupied very heavily. And so in Norwegian history, there's a very there's a very famous, there's a lot made of the Norwegian resistance movement, which was mostly focused around nonviolent civil disobedience. Um, a very famous example is uh, students at the universities would use paper clips as a symbol because uh, you know, they were all bound. What does a paperclip do? It binds binds things together. We're all bound together. Um, however, what what is not, or up until relatively recently, was not talked about as much in Norway, uh, was um, communist partisans were operating in Norway during, during the time. Uh, often in the north, often in more rural areas, the north being closer to Russia so you could get guns and supplies. Um, and it just wasn't given the same kind of credit. Whereas the national resistance was much more focused on civil disobedience and nonviolence. The communists uh, robbed banks. They blew up trains. They uh, uh, liquidated informants. They were willing, they were, they saw using violence as something that is both morally justified and necessary in the circumstances. And you can think about this film in the context of kind of splatter it's about the kind of failure of like, what, what, what is your theory of violence when confronted with a fascism that wants to literally tear you to pieces? Do you just, do you do just give back the gold or do you try and end its curse? Oh, abs- absolutely. Right. And this is, this is even, this is literally the plot of the second movie. Uh, Herzog after getting his gold, uh, so at the, at the beginning of the second movie, right? Like Her- Herzog is struck by a truck, you know, like which which severs his arm, and you know he he goes on to eat the trucker. But on the back of the truck, it's like um, I forget the name of the town. It's Tavin or something like that. Um, but it's like Tavin fishing supply or something like that. And and we learn through the course of the movie that during the Nazi occupation. That that town staged an uprising. They sabotaged. They they gathered like like farm implement tools and kitchen knives and fought back. You know, like they they kind of did this. Uh, you know, like pseudo spontaneous insurgency. We don't we don't find out if they were supported by the USSR or anything through the course of Dead Snow Two, but we do learn that like 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 okay, well once you appease the the Nazis, they simply shift their goals. They, yeah. they just move things a step further into your territory. You give them Poland, and now they start looking at the rest of Europe. Yeah, absolutely. Now, before we started recording, you made a, brill- a honestly amazing point that the second part basically fo- functions as like ideological historical theory fiction about how the Second World War was won. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, uh, the... The the, the the second film is theory fiction retelling the entirety of the fight of World War II from the perspective of, like, Norway as a political entity. It's a phenomenal movie. <laughs> uh, but, but it's retelling it not... It's retelling it 
for an American or globalized audience, right? Yes, so, yes, absolutely. So who is it that saves the day? Who is it that's super important in the second part? Oh, it's us, baby. It's the United States of America. We won WW2 single-handedly. We came in, did a little flex, you know, did a little benchy bench, and then we were out. It yeah, is, it, was, it was really shame. Came up, cleaned up the whole thing. It is Never heard from those Nazis again. It is America. America <laughs> is God- Bless oh America in Dead Snow USA, Red versus Day. USA. Uh, be, should, we should talk about we should talk about the Zombie Squad. Yes. Uh, so this this um, which I mean like this is telling for the nature of the film, right? I saw the original Dead Snow at a premiere here in the United States. United Snakes. Wow, United States. <laughs> Blame my allergies, everyone. Blame my allergies. Um, but I saw the, a premiere here in the United States, and this was, this movie went over very well in America, the original Dead Snow. Um, <clears throat> and so Dead, Dead Snow 2 has, like, a crew of zombie hunters. And, like, I I think they're, they're, they're such a good lambasting of how America sees its participation in World War II. Yes. Um, but, because, like, and I mean, just to be very clear here, like America was a key and deciding element in the victory in World War II. Like we were like, you know, like I shouldn't say we because I'm not 140 years old. Um, but like, you know, America was part of the fight against the Nazis at the time. And that's something that we need to grapple with in terms of history. But like if, if you look at like uh, the popularized American retelling, right, our own historical mythology that we've made here in this country it, it is it's that joke that I was doing earlier is that we kind of single handedly came in and and, you know, like, you know, the Brits were defeated. The French were always defeated because they're the French and, and the Russians were doing something. We don't really know. But then we came in and we fixed it, you know, like like we our, our brave troops and our ingenuity won the day. Very American mythology. And here we've got some American Nazi hunters and they're, they're they have they have that mentality. Right. They literally start chanting USA during part of the movie. And like, like there's, oh my God, there's this, there's this beautiful, beautiful line in the film. I, I, I was just dying laughing when, when they said this. Um, but uh, I like one of our Nazi hunters, like they're buying weapons at some Norwegian uh, hardware store and they're getting like axes and wood chip, wood clippers and like wood clippers. Wow. Uh, like, like hedge trimmers and stuff like that. Um, but then like they're, they're putting all that stuff in their trunk and they're like, one of them was like, it would be a lot easier if you could buy weapons here. And the other one says, I know what the fuck is the matter with this country? <laughs> <laughs> I guess we shouldn't talk but about, but they're also nothing but pop culture dorks. Yeah. And, uh, this and is like, this is yeah. my favorite thing as, as I put them, put it in the notes, they are the Reddit battalion. Um, <laughs> they, they are, they are like, they are so epic bacon. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because that was what nerd culture in the early uh, 2010s was like. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this, this this movie is entirely kind of caught up in that, caught, caught up in nerd culture. And it works well as kind of like, you've got this American mythologizing of, of being these like badass warriors who make do and, and get in there and save the day, which is which is you know, rooted in, in some partial historic truths, but then you have the unacknowledged side of things where it's like the, the, the this kind of like toothless pop culture, you, you know, like, like our, our blood is now like 10% Funko pop by volume <laughs> and not to, not to aggrandize the past because that's, it's kind of just the way America's always been. This is a byproduct of like 
you know, you know, America and England racing each other to the finish line to be the most capitalist possible country. Yeah. And America always being like one neck ahead in that race. Um, yeah, they, they are, they're an interesting example of what like nerd culture in 2012 to 2013 was actually like, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and in a way in retrospect, they're kind of endearing because of that. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree there, there. There's like, and I don't know if this is the fact that like nerd, nerd culture, just like, like, and when I say nerd culture here, I mean like nerd marketing. Yeah, because that that's really what we should talk about, right? Because like, like the epic bacon thing, bacon, right? Like, like, uh, dear dear listeners in the audience, especially dear listeners from the United States, um, how many of you remember when nerd culture and bacon as a product were synonymous, and 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 every every like nerd nerd oriented store was selling a lot of bacon merchandise. And epic bacon came at, at, into the popular lexicon. Like the, the, this was a marketing decision because there was more pork bellies than they could sell. Yeah. So 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 some some clever marketing genius was like, well, what if what if we marketed bacon to nerds? Yeah, you know, and they didn't get thrown out the window. Um, and, and I think like that that's that's kind of like we've gotten to a point now where like like um like all of the marketing around the She Hulk show is either about how the show is an act of liberatory feminism and needs to be respected for that, or it's a a dangerous piece of woke scold media destroying our, our Western civilization. And, and it's like this caustic liberal conservative extremist marketing has replaced like, not, and, and like, oh, I, sh- I shouldn't aggrandize that. I'm sorry, I'm rambling now. I shouldn't aggrandize the past either. Because like nerd culture has always been like fundamentally woven into like this 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 kind of I don't know extremely problematic misogyny and racism and anyway uh, please talk now. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's it. I mean, in some ways, you can read it as just kind of like a neat inversion of a very obvious thing, right? We're going to call up the Americans, and it's like, oh no, they're dorks. But also, yeah. it turns out that they're actually really useful to have around, rather than like they're the ones who are gonna like kick ass and take names. Mm-hmm. We can read it that way, but I do think it's really interesting that the film decides to like the film understands that it's a zombie film. Yes, it's a zombie film, and they're like, "Oh my god, it's cool! Zombies are actually real!" Like that's a line. That's a line in the film. <laughs> yes our our zombie squad is kind of surprised by the existence of real world zombies which is slightly <laughs> strange but okay but kind of kind of gets to what i'm trying to get at here that you know when the reddit battalion turn up to save the day it's uh it's a slightly odd choice that the film is making when, well, I, I, it becomes weirdly like prescient too, because like, and this is true uh, to, to a much lesser extent, um, because England doesn't allow you to buy uh, kitchen cutlery without having a retina scan. Boy, mate, you got um, a license for that. <laughs> Boy, governor, is it knife buying day? I haven't been able to buy a knife in five years. Little urchin running around the street saying that. Incredibly good Cockney accent I have, by the way. Yeah, we apologize to a <laughs> host of communities. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, sorry, everyone from England, broadly. Uh, but no, like I think I think like the 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 jovial point I'm jesting at here is that like because of the fact that you can buy like you know toddlers can buy rocket launchers in my country like america is is much more uh, over the edge with this stuff in, in terms of like preppers right you know like we there there are people in america who have built entire compounds in the middle of the desert designed to weather a nuclear apocalypse and they can't they don't actually do anything right like the only times these things ever pop up in the news is when someone's doing a profile of those wacky preppers or because like something went terribly wrong at their prepper compound and now their entire family is dead. Um, and and that, that's because like it's it's attempting to purchase your way out of things, which is a decidedly American approach to things. Oh, a hundred percent. And these and but but I, the another point that I was getting at is like it, it reminds me a lot of like there there like when um the Russian invasion of Ukraine was just beginning, there were so many people posting on Reddit about like. Like I'm, I'm a tactical ops expert, and I would like to go serve the Ukrainian army. And then someone would be like, "Oh, okay. Well, here's how you would do it. What's your experience?" And be like, "I have logged over 500 hours in Call of Duty Modern Warfare." <laughs> and even, even like, um, there, there, there was like an infamous case of like an actual British like special agent, decorated military guy who went over there. In Russia's a modern army with modern weapons. And was so afraid he went running back home. Yes. Like, like, like this is, this is kind of speaking to the Reddit battalion mentality. Yes. <laughs> this, this movie has aged too well, I would say. It is, it's, it's, turns out it wasn't like COD and maybe was a little more different. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't just get to shout, to shout slurs into a headset at 14 year olds. Who would have thought that warfare was different than that? Yeah. You know, who could say, who could say. Um, Agab, help us. <laughs> <laughs> Go listen to All Gamers Are Bastards, the podcast hosted by Kay and Skittles and Labor Kyle. It's the only podcast on video games. Ad read over. Uh, it, it, you know, it is the only. <laughs> I, you would think it's weird. It is weird because you would think there would be more, but it's it's not. It's the only one. No, it's I've the, tried to look too. Can, can't find them. It's the only video game podcast. Um, who okay, you- well. Oh, go on, go on, go on. Uh, should we should we answer a question? Should we answer the question of what is what is what is the subjectivity of the fascist in this film? I think this is super super interesting, right? Uh, because it's it's in this. Int- oh my god! Like I don't want to keep saying interesting. We're in a moment where the the shape of contemporary fascism has has changed a lot, right? Like like I I still remember those god awful like media pieces about the dapper fascist, you know they don't oh, look like yeah. boy skins anymore, and I think that this movie is doing something that I think is both important but also. Uh, maybe a little maybe something that we can trouble from both ends but i think it's by depicting the nazis as literal nazis it's reminding us of who they are regardless of what they look like they're nazis it doesn't it doesn't matter you know if if they're buying their clothes at brooks brothers or not they're fascists but it's also 
playing into the idea of like, oh, well, the only Nazis are the historical Nazis. And and uh, you only call them Nazis when they're from the Nazi region of Germany kind uh, of discourse. And that's uh, just otherwise it's just sparkling reactionary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Otherwise, they're alt right. Um, like and like all these we, we invent all these like subcategories and these these new taxa and like we're, we're, we're trying to describe and compartmentalize and categorize our way out of this stuff because that's an incredibly bureaucratic neoliberal thing to do it's inc- and this movie's like no they're nazis they're fascists yeah it's incredibly useful i think for the film to go actually when we talk about fascism we are talking about the sublimation of individuality into a into a violent uh sort of like subordination of of consciousness right yeah definitely. that's that's what it means to be a fascist is to is to give up one's own consciousness right to to just be just be the zombie the just i mean the the kind of obvious example here is uh eichmann you know i just i was just following the orders that i was given it's like yeah that's that's what fascism will do to you on the individual level Fascism will make oh, you absolutely. not just a literal, but a philosophical zombie. Yeah, so I think like zo- zombies are the perfect vehicle for exploring fascism. And I mean this outside of the context of movies like Dead Snow, where we have Nazi zombies. Like, I still think that one of the most problematic texts in terms of how it engages with fascism to come out in, in all of contemporary horror has been The Walking Dead. Yes. It, it's just, just in, a, in a minefield of... This kind of like, as as you put it, sublimated subjectivity in, into fascism through the vehicle of the zombie. Um, but also, you get zombie subjectivity in this, right? Because these are zombies with some kind of intellect, some kind of like there is a mind at work. You know, uh, Herzog Herzog uh, gives orders. There is a kind of consciousness. He's motivated by things. So it's like. In a way, it reminds me of the kind of later era of Romero zombies, yeah. especially, oh, especially in our sidekick zombie who keeps getting, who is the wily coyote of this film, who just <laughs> yeah. who just keeps keeps getting like squashed by tanks or run over by a car. And I'm just curious, what do you think about that aspect? So, so this I find to be really interesting, right? Because we even have our zombie, our zombie hunters in the beginning are like, oh, wow, these are cursed zombies, not biological zombies. That changes how we have to do things. And, and, and again, we have kind of this like, we, 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 we keep compartmentalizing, right? Like we, we, keep, we keep drawing new lines in the sand and new barriers and it becomes very difficult to talk about things um, intentionally in some ways too, right? Like, like there's new media, we have to invent new terms for things so we can have a new media hype cycle about them. Yeah. And like the, the, the zombies, sure that we can call them cursed zombies or whatever, but they, they still spread the same way. The zombie, the zombie kills you. It's zombie magic infects you. And then you rise again as a zombie. It's like, you know, like this isn't all that new. Yeah. The, 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 the kind of like, the, 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 the modality of this, right? How it's working. It is important to understand the differences, right? You know, like, like it's important to understand the differences between like an online meme Lord fascist and like uh, a fascist militia guy or something. Right. But at the end of the day, like they're, they're, they're kind of within the same camp. Yeah. 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 And fascists gets very, they get very concerned that they're being referred to correctly. 
you know, where they'll be like, oh no, I'm, I'm part of the alt-right or I'm a, I'm a, I'm a nationalist. And you're like, okay, all right. So what flavor of fascist am I supposed to be dealing with here? Well, and, and this is like, fascism does not have to play a serious game. Right, because they're they're la- so one one thing that I I love saying this because it annoys some people, but debate is a game. Debate is no different than basketball. Solving your problems by way of debate is really not fundamentally different from solving your problems by way of playing Magic the Gathering over it. Like, debate may be a fun exercise, but also exercising is a fun exercise. It's a game with a rule set. <laughs> Nazis and fascists do not care about that rule set, but they play the game. They spoil the game. And that tricks liberals who believe that everyone needs to be a good interlocutor and play by the rules of the game. Otherwise, what's the point? So they get hoodwinked and like actual anti-fascists are like, no, the, these guys are tricking you. When, when they say, oh, actually, no, I'm not a fascist. I'm, I'm sparkling alt-right. Like that's, that's intentional. That, that, that's a gimmick. You know that that's and they're they're intentionally obfuscating a game of language in in order to to hoodwink and con people. I think we should also talk about the the heroes of this film. Um, you know the <laughs> yeah. We should talk go. about the heroes of this film. We should talk about the the people the boys. who who did actually probably the most to ensure the the death uh, and destruction of the literally. fascist project. Uh, we should talk about. Uh, all all power to the Soviets. We should talk about. <laughs> we should talk about Soviet zombies. Yes, and I think I think this movie is is also really clever about this too, right? Because like, in terms of defeating the Nazis and fighting fighting them back, like which which nation gave more than the Soviet Union? Yeah, you know, like like uh, America and the partisans throughout Europe and, and and everybody was was vital and important and necessary in the struggle against the Nazis. But like the the Soviets were in that fight for a very long time, and they paid dearly for that in terms of lives. Uh, yes, we should talk about the fact that um, any argument that says anything different is anti-communist propaganda. Um, yeah, but we should talk about the fact that I'm not I'm not necessarily wild about the way that the the Russian soldiers are presented in this. Um, there is this like this whole thing of like. One of the one of the Nazis' kind of common arguments was that Europe needed them to protect them from the kind of Russian horde. Uh, yes, and it's sort of like, ah, okay, we're doing we're doing this, are we? We're talking about these vaguely animalistic and subservient Russians that we're going to use as cannon fodder. Hmm, I'm sort of like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh no, no, absolutely. I think. I think there's a lot to tease out about how the the kind of Red Army is depicted in this one. So, uh, Herzog is you know in charge of the Nazi zombies, right? He's 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 their leader. He's the single focal point of their identity, right? Fascism. Uh, likewise, Martin is kind of the leader of the Soviet Union, and and those zombies. He's the necromancer that brings them back, you know. Yes. And in proper necromancer <clears throat> tradition, so uh. St- Stavarin is the the kind of like uh, Soviet captain. That, yes, uh, yeah, uh, Martin Stavarin, uh, played by Derek Mears, did a wonderful job in that role. Very imposing. Um, but like that kind of kind of create his only line of dialogue is to look at Martin and say, "Master," 
you know like it's uh it's, it's a little weird the, the movie kind of it's kind of only engaging with the shape uh, and the, the vague cultural iconography of the soviet union rather than this movie is not saying the soviet union was good this movie is not saying the soviet union was anything you know it's it's only saying that the soviet union was an important part in the battle against the nazis yeah which they is were a there very toothless statement <laughs> And I think it's because I think that that silence is there is because to, to take it more seriously, to take the Russian soldiers more seriously as Russian soldiers means dealing with the thing of this film, which cannot be spoken, um, which is communism. Yeah. That's, that's what this film can't say. It can't, they were Russian soldiers uh, they really didn't like fascists for for no specific political reason. <laughs> <laughs> and we can like, it, it's kind of a lost opportunity on the movie, right? Y you know, like, or at least in terms of like, I shouldn't put it all on Dead Snow too, because this is the product of like European and North American anti-communism for the last nearly hundred years. Yes, absolutely. It's it's not the fault of Dead Snow too. <laughs> <laughs> they are virtually blameless in this regard. The the fun think, like, the fun zombie movie uh, it didn't didn't have all the answers here. Who knew? There's there, there's so much to pick apart about the Soviet Union though that in the context of an anti-Nazi zombie movie could have been really interesting. There, there are there are wonderful achievements that were made in the Soviet Union. Uh, th there are also terrible failings and shortcomings and missteps that betrayed the project of communism. And this movie doesn't want to talk about any of that. I and mean, that, that, that to only, me, if there's something in this movie that fails, it's that. Yeah, it only mentions Joseph Stalin once. And I'm like, come on, go there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to you have to go into that, right? Like you really like this movie is like like for a splatter film that's kind of not shy. It's oddly squeamish about the the red army being anything but this historical figure that it, it like it's it's you know like to go to go back to what i was saying my pricey if there's anything in these movies that that's something out of a historical like play set it's the soviet army yeah we have like little little like plastic army men from the soviet union and they just come out and go away yes exactly and i think that is a little disappointing i think that's a little disappointing and it brings up like there's some there's a kind of fascinating moment in the final half an hour where we have a big face off between the mm -hmm. two uh two zombie armies and it's like fascists versus communists this historical struggle being played out literally in like a playground of the modern day and i'm like i'm like yep what is going on here it's this amazing it's this I... amazing moment of like recuperating kind of 20th century political ideology, filtering it through pop culture pastiche and parody and like kind of just like throwing it up on screen. I love that final sequence. I, I really, really, really love the... I, I love the fact that it's in a playground too because that reminds me of so much of this like... This is like the, the, the kind of approach to history, the historiography that's like, well... Um, if Hitler would have ordered his generals to go 25 miles south during this battle, they would have actually found that the Russian encampment would, would have ran out of ammunition four hours earlier. And this means Hitler would have been able to rout the entire Red Army and conquer the world. 
like like this really 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 over determined approach to the events of history and what mattered and what influenced things and how things went about um and it's like oh like that's that's how we talk about this it's the nazis and the soviets fighting in a playground yeah yeah you know it's it's divorced from political contexts and argumentations and real world effects and it's strictly down to like well, if the Nazis had access to the slide one hour earlier, they would have been unstoppable. Uh, I'm using my Soviet-proof shield, so <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, yes, yeah, I, I think that's true. Very, yeah, um, but I do also think like there is this idea that like the ideologies of the 20th century have now become like a toy. They become like oh. You know, sensible grown-ups today don't have any ideological commitments. That's just something that kids, you grow out of that. And it's like, that isn't really the case because the sensible adults in this film uh, are the police, <laughs> right? They're the, <laughs> they're the only non-ideological force, right? Yeah, and they, and they literally, like, there is, like, a literal bit where the police captain cannot tell the difference between the Nazi zombies and the Soviet zombies. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's amazing. Like, I, I, a horror vanguard could not have written this movie, <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think that's totally important, right? This this idea that the political ideologies of the twenty first century have become nothing but toys in a sandbox. Yeah, toys and this uh, movie, part of the spectacle. Part of the spectacle. Ab- absolutely, and and that because we see this more online, right? Like, oh, like you know. People only call someone a Nazi or Hitler when they've run out of arguments and not when sometimes they're actually a Nazi. Yeah, you know, and like conversely, reducing the Soviet Union to nothing but a toy in a toy box fuels both the the, the kind of hagiography hey, and aggrandizing of the USSR as as paradise on earth and this thing that we need to return to, which is very problematic to hear some people on the left talking about. And also doesn't allow us to talk about all the good things that were done by the USSR and ideas that might be worth considering again in our modern moment. Yeah, completely. Completely. Um, and you were ha, worried. Ha, ha. The USSR both did good things and bad things. Ha ha. <laughs> Enjoy that one, discourse of the internet. Oh no, not nuance. <laughs> <laughs> um, where, would you, where would you like to wrap things up? as we bring our conversation to a close. Um, well, so one thing in, in this movie that I really find to be interesting is that once, once Martin kind of like Martin quickly gains control over his zombie arm, you, you know, and it stops being this kind of threatening fascist presence and it starts being something that he can engage with, which is a whole mountain of discourse to be had there. But he figures all of that out when he's at a world war II museum in Norway um, he's, he's at a museum that kind of looks at the Nazi presence uh, during World War II in the country and specifically the region that they're all fighting in. And, and this, is, this is what turns the tide, right, is, is he goes to a museum to seek information about his own history, to understand his role in the present moment, right? The, the kind of public history and public scholarship represented by this museum um, allows him to change his orientation to his present and, and go from someone who's willing to appease and work with fascist forces to someone who recognizes that they must be opposed. That's my closing statement. <laughs> and it's incredible that once again, we come back to the value of, of 
museums, the value of knowledge, right? We don't actually know our own histories. We don't yet know what history is is doing. Not not what, what it did, but what history is doing in the here and now, right? It's it's so it's so kind of striking to me that in the era of kind of climate catastrophe and anthropogenic climate change, where we see literally the ice melting beneath our feet, what what is unearthed as the as the ice cracks, but the still ongoing bloody viscera of the overall historical struggle that is the class struggle, that is the attempt to kind of build build a world which is free of fascism. Uh, it is beneath our feet, right? It, it's still there. It's still it. It will always try and return until it can no longer return. Until the very conditions which make it a possibility have become unthinkable. Like, but we don't yet know. We don't yet know what history has uh, can do. Um, mostly because what we're given as history is this filtered amalgamation of of various different. Uh, ideological forces that attempt to impose a kind of unity. It's a kind of snowfall over the top of those bodies and it's trying to kind of smooth out the landscape and to make it into something with an easy teleology that lends itself to the liberal hegemonic capitalist vision that we've inherited. But that is not history. That's not history. Sometimes history is fucking up Nazis with a snowmobile. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was I was gonna say sometimes sometimes history is a is a Nazi getting his balls roll roll is it ugh. sometimes history is a zombie getting his balls ran over by a car for five minutes straight. <laughs> it's uncomfortable. It's it, it's funny out of an awkward sense of laughter. It gets a little weird to look at. Like I like splatter as a historiography because it returns the kind of uncomfortable goo to the to history as as a way of remembering right it it reminds us that this thing was once alive and so are we you know we are not so severed from these discussions history isn't just scraps of metal and stone and uniforms and charts right history is bodies we hope you've enjoyed the dread discourse Until next week, stay spooky.